Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 18 of Unknown Orbits, Things to Come. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be talking about the 1936 movie, Things to Come, written by H.G. Wells, taken from his novel, The Shape of Things to Come, from 1933. This movie is a milestone in science fiction. The set design and the visuals of the movie were unparalleled up to that point. And that's a good deal of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to talk about a number of different aspects of this film, but I would say the main focus would be how influential it was in terms of its visual style, how it affected science fiction going forward. So you're making the argument that solely the visual style of this movie had an effect. It was not a hugely successful movie at the box office. By certain people, it was highly revered and respected. But I would say the main thing that it influenced going forward was the visual style of science fiction. But let me uh, give you a little background on the movie itself. As I said, it was adapted by H.G. Wells, so he actually wrote the screenplay. Oh, I didn't know that. From his 1933 novel, The Shape of Things to Come. And The Shape of Things to Come was predictive sort of science fiction where he was speculating what would the world look like in the 1980s and the 2010s, whatever. The thing about H.G. Wells that I learned by doing the research for this is that by the time 1933, 1936 came along, his best work was well behind him. His very famous works like The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, that was all done in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So he was famous for being famous, largely regarded as the esteemed, famous scientific romance writer. That was the term they used early on and was the man of the future, the wise man who knew all about the future. And he filled that role for decades. Yeah. Beginning in the 1920s, he, he began writing a lot of nonfiction. I think he died in 1946. Yes. So by the time this movie was made, that's who H.G. Wells was. He was no longer a innovative fiction writer. He was a largely a nonfiction writer, wrote a lot of very ponderous lectures. A lot of his books that he wrote were very pontificating in their content. And this movie is kind of representative of that H.G. Wells. My initial impression was that the British movie audiences of the 30s must have really loved a good speech. Yeah, apparently. So let's circle back to the movie itself. It came out in 1936. It starred several esteemed actors of the time. Sir Ralph Richardson, who was considered, along with Olivier, one of the great actors of the time. Raymond Massey who was a highly regarded American actor, and then Sir Cedric, eventually Sir Cedric Hardwick. He wasn't Sir Cedric at that time. It was directed by William Cameron Menzies, who was a highly sought-after and highly esteemed art director. He was responsible after this movie for the visuals of Thief of Baghdad, which was a very visually 
dazzling movie of its time in 1940. He was largely responsible for a lot of the visuals of the movie Gone with the Wind. The famous sequence where they show the Confederate hospital and there's that crane shot of all of the wounded men. He actually directed that particular sequence of the movie. So he was extremely innovative, extremely creative visually as an art director. He won an Honorary Academy Award in 1940 for outstanding achievement in the use of color for the enhancement of dramatic mood. This was one of his first directing assignments. And not surprisingly, one of the, the more admirable aspects of this movie is the visual style, the visual effects, the scenery, the montage that was used. So to give you a basic plot, the movie opens in every town England on Christmas 1940. Bear in mind, this was made in 1936, so they were already going into the future several years, Christmas 1940. So Christmas carols are blended with martial drum beats as people go about their holiday business Newspaper headlines warn of imminent war. And as all of this is happening, out of the blue, an aerial attack from the unstated enemy destroys the town, and then we are treated to a montage of war that spans the years to 1966. There are a lot of montages in this movie. This is a very montage-heavy movie. So in 1966, after 30 years of nonstop war... Civilization is broken down to nearly medieval levels, and every town is ruled by a strong man called the Boss, played wonderfully by Sir Ralph Richardson. You're really good with names. I am not. It drove me nuts, but I finally figured out that I had seen him before playing God in Time Bandits. Yes. Yeah. For those of you who don't know who Sir Ralph Richardson is, that's one of his more well-known roles. And he was wonderful in that movie, too. He really was one of the great actors of the 20th century. He was a very strange man in personal life, but he was a wonderful actor. So the chief is still at war with a rival hill tribe and he's trying to get a small group of ancient biplanes off the ground to attack the hill people and finally conquer them and raymond massey shows up dressed in a weird sort of spacesuit, flying a very futuristic looking plane and marches into every town and basically tells him your days are over and sir ralph richardson throws him in in jail and tries to get the secrets of making gasoline and getting his, his ships fixed so he can go to war. And that highly advanced mono-wing technology. Yeah, yeah. So long story short, Raymond Massey is part of a group of airmen. So this is actually something we've talked about previously in the show, the idea of a dictatorship of the air. That was a very popular thing back in the 1930s and even going before that, where a group of highly advanced airmen controlled the world by bombing and attacking cities and and so forth through dirigibles and then after dirigibles, fleets of airplanes. Did we discuss before why there was that attitude? It was just one of those things that fictionally was repeated by a lot of writers. Jules Verne did it. H.G. Wells did it. The story for Buck Rogers was a dictatorship of the air. So it was just one of those tropes that was widely used for many, many decades. I guess what I was getting at was why did the trope exist? And I just pictured myself as being a person on the ground my whole life, nothing's in the air, and then suddenly they invent flying machines. They must have had this huge sense of vulnerability to these sure. things that could go over them. I mean, think about it. Even in the mid-1930s, the idea of space travel was still somewhat controversial, even among scientists. So manned flight 
you know, in airplanes, that was the apex of technology uh, at the time. So obviously, if you're going to write a science fiction story where someone takes over the world, they're going to use the most advanced technology, which at that time was manned flight. The newest ideas. Right. So to, to finish up the, the plot here, Raymond Massey and his fleet of Art Deco airplanes wipe out the chief and his forces, and they conquer the world and establish peace all around the world. And then we have another gigantic montage where they're building this city of the future underground. And then the, the last part of the movie is, again, Raymond Massey, only this time he's playing his grandson, even though he looks identical. It's, it's one of those tricks of this movie was in the beginning of the movie, Raymond Massey in 1940 is a character. And then I don't remember if it's his son or himself, who's like 80 years old in the, the middle part. And then his grandson at the end of the movie in the futuristic city playing a very similar character, but he's not the same person. And you pay fewer actors when you do that. Right. The whole plot there is they've built an electric cannon to fire a space capsule into space to land on the moon. Now, it took me a while to realize they didn't know the technology. They, I mean, there were specialists who knew what the future would be by that time, but the general H. G. public... H.G. Wells himself being one of them. But he used a cannon. Which is interesting. They could have had a spaceship that they climbed on to go to the moon. That's why I'm saying that I don't think people realize in the 1930s, the idea of space travel by use of rockets was still controversial. A lot of people looked down on science fiction because they had all these stories about rocket ships and they thought, well, that's just a bunch of fantasy. You're right. I forgot that people thought at the time rockets worked by pushing against things and there was nothing in space to push against. There were interplanetary or rocket societies. We've talked about those in the past on other episodes that some of the writers and editors that we've talked about were involved in interplanetary societies which were actively promoting the idea of science fiction. And this continued on through the 1940s into the 1950s. And it really wasn't until the late 1950s when the Americans and the Russians were launching rockets into space and Russia had that breakthrough moment with Sputnik. It really wasn't until the late 1950s that the idea of space travel became something that was an accepted possibility and accepted reality. So that's why they didn't use a rocket ship. They used an electric gun, a gigantic gun that shot a projectile out of it, which is something that came all the way from Jules Verne. Yeah. You know, anyway, to wrap up the movie, a group of artists decide that this is despoiling the universe by sending people into space, which is a kind of a weird conceit. And Sir Cedric Hardwick leads a, a revolution and they storm the electric gun platform to try to stop it. And Raymond Massey's daughter and this other character's son who are in love with each other get on the spaceship and they're fired off into space. And then there's a long speech at the end and then that's it for the movie. One of the best parts of the movie is that the two are in love with each other because they're going to spend the rest of their lives there. How are they going to get down? That was one of the things that was a little foggy at the end of the movie. There was like a window for when they had to launch but they had to move up the window because they were being attacked by this mob. And they said at one point, you won't make the moon, you'll just circle the moon forever or something like that. And then they kind of gloss over that. 
Yeah. There was a bit of a hand wave there. Yeah. But still, when you think about it, no matter what the plan is, how did they land? I mean, they didn't even mention anything yeah, there, like that. It was like or, a bullet. So I, I don't see how that turns into a landing craft of any kind. Mm-hmm. By the way, as I said, this screenplay was written by H.G. Wells. In a minute, I'm going to talk about his level of involvement in this movie. But before we do that, I'm just going to give you my quick reaction to the movie. It's a visually impressive movie, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. It's a interesting movie. Parts of it, like the part with Sir Ralph Richardson as the boss, that part is kind of amusing and fun. But it is a ponderous, bloated, speech-filled movie. It is a very pompous movie at some points. And there's that wild speech at the end by Raymond Massey where it's like, it's stars or death. We don't go to the stars and we're going to die as a species. And it's very overblown. So that's my take on it. And that's why I think it's more important to talk about the visual aspects of it than the actual writing or plot. But what do you think? I think it would be a very good experience watching this movie, keeping in mind that it really highlights what they didn't know. All apologies to Mr. Wells. It seems like his predictions went off really, really early on. That's one thing you can say about the movie is when they were talking about the early war, that was pretty spot on. You that had, was, you had yeah. England being bombed by the enemy. He predicted the Blitz. They had montages of tank warfare. So that was pretty accurate. But then from that point forward, the science kind of falters a little bit. And to be honest, there isn't a ton of science. Like when we said the idea of an electric gun shooting people into space, even at that point might have been very questionable. I'm not sure. The most science fiction-y thing they had was the peace gas, which apparently would knock people out for a little while. Yeah, instead of bombing the bad guys, they knocked everybody out. With fentanyl. Something like that. Liquid fentanyl or something. So it had a lot of montages. It had a lot of speeches. It wasn't exactly a a masterpiece of literary screenplay writing. And the person to blame for that is H.G. Wells himself. He had almost complete control over this movie. That's how famous a person, that's how much leverage he had. So when they went to make this movie, he had almost veto power over nearly every aspect of the movie. And he took advantage of that. He was giving direction to Cameron Menzies on how to construct certain scenes visually and what should the buildings look like and what sort of clothing should the people wear. I mean, he got down into the details and almost everybody involved with that movie said H.G. Wells was really, really hard to deal with, that that was the thing that made that movie difficult, was just constantly having everything you do criticized and picked apart by H.G. Wells himself. The look of the future was really good. Right. Let's jump right to that. Oh, can I make a comment on the warlord? Sure. H.G. Wells was an early advocate of women's rights. And he slept with a lot of different women in his life. So I'm sure that had something to do with it. He was very broad-minded when it came to women. It did get past me at first because I'm used to more modern movies. But I started to realize for 1936, the wife or maybe consort of the boss in the middle part was a very strong character for the time. And I'm convinced by her costuming that she was based on a a real-life person, if you know a little English history. Around the year, like, 40, there was a, I think, Roman lady named Boudicca. People argue over how it's pronounced. It's just guaranteed. Boudicca, that's the way I think I would it. I think I like Boudicca better. 
Her husband was killed, and she ended up taking on the Romans. Yeah, she was a Celt. They've actually used that character in movies several times. The one that comes to mind is King Arthur, I think it was, with Clive Owen in it as King Arthur, and he plays a Roman general. And the actress from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, her name escapes me, she plays Boudicca in that movie. That character's been in a couple other movies, too, so... It's almost like King Arthur. It may or may not be based on a real person, but it's a legendary character. And yeah, I can see that in terms of the visual costuming that she had. It looked earlier than medieval. It did look like Dark Ages, almost Roman in, in the way that she dressed. She had that kind of wraparound bracelet on the upper arm. That seemed very Celtic, yeah. So talking about the visual design, this was very much an example of modernism. And modernism is a term in art that's extremely broad. It covers decades of different sub-movements, some of which were Art Deco, Expressionism, Modernist itself is a sub-genre. I'm not an art history expert, but I know enough to be able to say, for the sake of this movie, that the producer, Alexander Korda, leaned heavily on modernist ideas for the design of the movie. He actually hired an extremely famous and influential architect and artist named Le Corbusier. I think that's how I pronounced it. He hired him to do production design. This is a man who built famous buildings in the 1920s, the 1930s. He was heavily involved in promoting the idea of livable spaces in urban spaces. He was one of the most famous architects in the world at the time. And Alexander hired him to do some production design work. Most of what he came up with was very avant-garde and was not used in the film. There was a later montage where they're building the city of the future. Portions of Le Corbusier's ideas were used in that montage, but he was not involved in, in the design of the city itself. So... One of the things that Alexander Corda did is that he went to like all of the architecture magazines of the day and just was cutting pictures out of the magazine and saying, here, let's try this, let's try this. So he was just strip mining all of these modernist ideas. And that's the thing. In 1936, if you're going to talk about, let's build a city of the future, of course you're going to lean on the modernists to do that. Some of them, not all of them, like I said, this is a very broad movement. Some of them had the idea that you were improving the world for the future. So it was the idea of through architecture and urban planning that you were going to build a better world, better for people, better for society, more effective, more efficient, all of that. So that philosophy was perfect for this movie because that's exactly what the city of the future was supposed to be. Well, there's a very strong element of technocracy in this as well. Yes, which... We've talked about John W. Campbell a number of times on this episode. This is exactly the sort of thinking that a guy like John W. Campbell and many other science fiction writers of the era felt. They were technocrats. They were people who thought, in the case of science fiction writers, science and technology could improve the world. John W. Campbell's tinkerings, the stuff that he got involved with L. Ron Hubbard in the 1950s was driven by the idea that you could build a better person through psychology. This is all part of that same futurist orientation of a better world based on, in this case, architecture and, and urban planning and also science. That was the speech at the end of the movie that Raymond Massey gives. It's all full of this idea that 
we have to keep advancing as a species. We have to go out into space. We have to do all this exploration. Otherwise, we're going to die as a species. That philosophy is very strong in this film. And because it was expressed in this film mainly through visuals, as I said, I don't think anybody was inspired by Raymond Massey's speeches or any of the other pontificating that happened in this movie. But I think a lot of people were influenced by this is what the world of the future is going to look like. So having said that, let's give a little bit of background on that idea of the city of the future. If we look back on the history of that period of the city of the future, the first and most famous example is the movie Metropolis, which was directed by Fritz Lang in 1927. And interestingly, H.G. Wells hated Metropolis. Really? I've got a quote from him here. Have recently seen the silliest film... I do not believe it would be possible to make one sillier. It's called Metropolis. It comes from the great UFA studios in Germany, and the public is given to understand that it has been produced at an enormous cost. It gives in one eddying concentration almost every possible foolishness, cliche, platitude, and muddlement about mechanical progress and progress in general, served up with a sauce of sentimentality that is all its own. Okay, that honestly sounds like jealousy, envy. He went on. I mean, you can read the whole thing. He went on for pages just excoriating this movie. Plus, after seeing Things to Come, I don't think he should criticize anyone about cliches. Yeah, exactly. But Metropolis, if any of you have never seen it, it is another visually stunning movie. It is, a again, the, the city of the future. But in this case... The city of the future has that beautiful overlayer. So the upper layers of the city are filled with flying cars and giant skyscrapers. Very typical futuristic city. But the lower levels of the city are occupied by the workers and their their life is terrible. There's a famous scene where there's a bunch of people operating a piece of machinery and they look like they're being swallowed alive by the, the machinery. It's very impressionistic. So there was a very strong message there that was basically a socialist message by Fritz Lang and his wife who wrote the screenplay that technology was going to consume the working class and was only going to benefit the rich. And I don't know whether that's what he objected to, but H.G. Wells himself at one point had been a socialist. When did Metropolis come out? 1926 or 27. I think it was 26. Okay. But it's, it's a very famous movie. It's a very influential movie. It's an important movie. Like things to come, it was not a box office success. As a matter of fact, almost immediately after it was completed by Fritz Lang, the producers cut huge chunks out of it. So the version that most people saw was a shortened version, which was the only one that was available for many years. And it wasn't until very recently, last few decades, that someone was able to put together a, a new version that restored most of the lost footage. So it played around the world, but it was not a box office hit by any measure. Interestingly, Fritz Lang did follow up with another science fiction movie, Woman in the Moon. Really? It was right after sound came in, so I think it was an early sound film in the late 20s. Again, still made in Germany. And he was actually a fan of science fiction. Later in life, when he had emigrated to America, he accumulated a large collection of science fiction magazines including Astounding, Weird Tales, Galaxy, so forth. So he was a big fan of science fiction. For this movie, The Woman in the Moon, it was very scientifically accurate for the day. Rocket scientists from Germany, one of them, the predominant rocket scientist of Germany, Hermann 
Oberth consulted on the movie, along with Willie Lay, who later would become extremely important in the promotion of space travel in the United States. So it was a technically very accurate, sound movie. It was kind of a melodrama where, just like in Things to Come, two lovers went off into space and they landed on the moon. And then then it goes a little astray because they're wandering around in the moon without spacesuits and things like that. That was, again, not a huge box office success, but it was an important movie because it was the first movie to really accurately depict space travel based on the latest technological and scientific knowledge of the time, which in Germany, they were pretty well advanced in terms of rocket technology compared to many other countries. I think they pushed rocket technology along with many other technologies as areas that they were allowed to explore because there were so many things after World War One. Oh yeah, the, uh, the agreement that limited them to X number of battleships and X number of divisions, and you couldn't build tanks. But yes, 1929, the Nazis were not fully in control of Germany at that time. Fritz Lang's wife, Theodora Harbaugh, I think that's her name, he left Germany and, and came to America in the early 1930s. She stayed in Germany, and she was an enthusiastic Nazi supporter. So she got involved in the propaganda efforts for the Nazis. So that was Fritz Lang's last big science fiction movie. There was one other movie made in 1930 that was a City of the Future movie. That was the movie Just Imagine, made in Hollywood. And it was a musical comedy where a man from 1930 finds himself transported to 1980s New York. And hilarious hijinks ensue. He was like a very vaudevillian character, apparently. I've never seen this movie. But... It was notable for the cityscape that they built. They built this gorgeous Art Deco cityscape, which had flying cars and then the the highways with the cars on them and and the soaring skyscrapers. And it cost $168,000 to build, which at the time was a lot of money. And the movie was, again, not a huge box office success, but the producers were able to recover some of their money by farming out footage from that movie to serials like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. So whenever there was a scene of a city of the future in Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon, it was from that movie. One minor little bit of trivia with this movie, it was the first appearance of the electrical gadgets of Kenneth Strickfadden, who's most famous for making all the electrical gadgets for the Frankenstein movies. Oh, so you're talking like Jacob's Ladders? Yeah, the sparking machines and the wheels that turned around shooting off sparks and all of the gadgets. When Frankenstein was making his monster, he's got all these electrical machines going off. That was Kenneth Strickfadden, who was a guy who basically built all of these machines in his garage, and then Hollywood would hire him out to bring him over to the movie set. He'd set them up and set them off, and then he'd take them back to his garage. And he did that for many years, decades. He was had a thriving business providing electric gizmos for Hollywood. So here you had a series of movies culminating in Things to Come, which gave you a vision of the city of the future. They were all visually impressive, and they created that impression in the people's mind. This is what cities would look like in the future. You'd have flying cars and soaring skyscrapers and people walking around in togas. And that was an image that stuck in people's minds for many years afterwards, through the 1940s into the 1950s, this idea that that's what a city of the future would look like, and everybody would be 
happier and healthier and, and all of that. But at the time, those ideas were not embraced by the public because none of these movies did good box office. So that's very interesting. I thought, as a final note on the movie Things to Come, that it was not a particularly well-written movie, and it's 80% default of H.G. Wells himself because he had total control. There were some things that he put in the screenplay that the producers kind of put their foot down and said, no, we can't film that, or that's ridiculous. But a great deal of it was 100% H.G. Wells himself. So he's to blame for that movie being ponderous and filled with speeches and even for its time, a little bit clunky. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised at the scene with the early part of the future when civilization is recovered and you have the grandfather and the granddaughter. He didn't use the words, but he did a, well, as you know, scene. (laughs) Yeah, it's exposition that was not particularly well done. As I said earlier, this is a point in H.G. Wells' life where he hadn't written any really good fiction in decades. He had not written any, basically since World War I, he had not written anything of note in terms of his fiction. He had devoted most of his time to nonfiction, a lot of which was very preachy and very uh, high-minded. So it's not a perfect movie. It's worth watching as a science fiction fan for the visuals. And I think that's what it's going to be remembered for most. Kind of disappointing considering that it was H.G. Wells and he had so much control over the outcome of the movie. Wow. Okay, that's it for episode 18. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.